Oh, Spirit of God, we sing that as our prayer. We pray that You would open them. The eyes of our minds, the eyes of our hearts. And Holy Spirit, in particular, I'd like to ask that You will show us how to respond to this teaching. May the teaching be clear. And then what You're calling us to do, may it be just as clear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I could not believe my eyes when I saw the headline in this last week's paper. I have it right here. Accord may finally end doctrinal disagreement. And then the subtitle, Anglicans discuss acceptance of Roman Catholic teaching on Mary. I read this article. I said, Is it, that, that simply cannot be. You're talking about the largest Protestant communion on earth. And now there's concord over... Mary? I mean, you have the teaching of the Immaculate Conception. That's Mary born without the taint of original sin, Rome's teaching. And you also have Rome's teaching of the bodily assumption. And that is when Mary comes to the end of, the, end of her life, both her body and soul are taken to heaven. I said, that just can't be. But that night I went on the web. And I went to the, the official site of the Anglican Church in the United States. That would be the Episcopal Church. I went to that site, and sure enough, there was this press release. Let me just read a line or two to you. A five-year study by Roman Catholic and Anglican scholars. And by the way, these are scholars. This is not the formal, two formal churches now, but the scholars of the church. A five-year study into the place of the Virgin Mary in Christian doctrine has tried to reconcile one of the main differences that have traditionally divided. All right? The division. Caused the division between Catholics and Protestants. The Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission, ARCIC, declared that prayers to Mary, the mother of Jesus, do not conflict with Christ's unique mediation with God the Father. Quoting the, the, the uh, research paper, we, we do not consider the practice of asking Mary and the saints to pray for us as communion dividing. We believe that there is no continuing theological reason for ecclesial division on these matters, said the report titled, Mary, Grace and Hope in Christ. Now, in this paper, one more line here, the paper addresses two Catholic dogmas about Mary, the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption, which it says, I'm quoting the paper now, the research paper, have been seen as points which have separated Anglican and Catholic churches. It states that neither is contrary to Scripture. And then one more line, prayers to Mary and the saints rather than directly to Christ were rejected by the Protestant reformers of the 16th century who claimed the practice was idolatrous. Neither teaching is contrary to Scripture? Ladies and gentlemen, may I remind you that the Holy Scriptures teach that by name only three have been bodily assumed into heaven. By name, Enoch, Moses, and Elijah. Interestingly enough, it is the last one, Elijah, that figures so prominently in Paul's carefully reasoned treatise on the salvation of the Jews. And I want you to open your Bible with me right now. Let's, let's cut to the chase. Romans, the book that has been our focus for weeks now. Romans chapter 10. Journeying with the Jews, part 2. Last Sabbath, part 1. A little mini-series as we're nearing the ending of this big series. All right, Romans chapter 10. I want to begin in verse 1. Romans 10, verse 1. I'm going to be in the today's New International Version. T-N-I-V. 
If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a pew Bible right in front of you. It's the New King James Version. And if you will go to page 763, you'll be at Romans 10, verse 1 with the rest of us. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Let me read it in your hearing. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. I used to think that God rejected the Jews when they rejected Christ. Then I read Romans and found out that, in fact, the community of faith that I have grown up in and I have been wrong, quite wrong, actually. Take a look at this. Let me read it again. Verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Verse 2. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Verse 3, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now comes verse 4. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Did you catch that? Christ is the culmination of the law. Now, my friends, this is one of the most controverted lines in all the writings of Paul. And yet a brand new translation powerfully renders a word that should end the controversy. In fact, this is so significant. I want you to jot it down in your study guide that you have today. I want you to get the TNIV rendition of this. Take your study guide. It's, it's in your uh, worship bulletin. Thank you, ushers. If you got in here without a worship bulletin or several of you came per bulletin, raise your hand. Don't be embarrassed. And we have an extra study guide for you. Those of you who are watching on television right now, let me give you a website. You can go to this website and find the same study guide. There it is on the screen, www.pmchurch.tv. When you get to our website, click onto our series, Wine and Milk. That's the series from Romans. This is, can you believe it, part 21. Click onto Wine and Milk, part 21. The title of this teaching, When Chosen Means Choosing. You click right there and you'll have the same study guide that we are going to now proceed through. All right? Please write it down. Right there at the outset, Christ is the culmination. See, this is the TNIV rendition of verse 4. Christ is the culmination of the law. Every other major translation, every other translation you have in your lap, the major ones, renders telos, the Greek word, as end. So that your translation reads, Christ is the end of the law. But such a translation inadvertently fuels the teaching that God rejected Israel, after Israel rejected Christ, by suggesting Israel's Torah has come to an end, replaced by Christ and grace and faith. But that is not what Paul is saying at all. In fact, write it in, please. Christ is the culmination of the Torah. Write that in. He is the culmination of the Torah. I.e., Christ is the mighty summation of all divine revelation in the Torah. Summation of it. A point, by the way, made very well by one of our own Andrews University doctoral graduates. His name, Robert Badenus. Twenty years ago, this very, this very time, he, gradu he was graduated from Andrews. He has since written a book, now critically acclaimed, by the way, quoted by new commentaries on Romans. One of my commentaries quotes him. Title of his book. It's based only on that line, Christ is the end of the law. And that's the title of the book, Christ the end of the law. I, I think I have this in your study guide. Here is his observation. For Paul... The eternal gospel of God is the true meaning of every passage of the Torah. For Christ is the hermeneutical key, the interpreting key. Just forget that word. Christ is the key which makes intelligible what was always the law's true meaning and purpose. 
Ladies and gentlemen, why else does Jesus cry out in the Sermon on the Mount? These immortal words. You remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 17? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Would you write that down, please? What is he saying? I did not come to abolish the Torah. Write it down. The Torah and the prophets. Clearly, therefore... In Romans 10:4, Paul is not here declaring the disillusion, the termination, or the end of the Torah or the law. Rather, he is championing Christ Jesus as the mighty culmination, the summation, the very divine embodiment of the Torah. And, and follow the logic here. If the Torah has not ended, would the people of the Torah be ending either? Read verse 4 again. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. By the way, please note your translation does not read for everyone who believes except for the Jews. No, 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 no. There will be righteousness for everyone who believes, Jews, Gentiles, the entire human race. There is enough divine righteousness to go around for all. Yeah, but say, come on, come on, Pastor. Isn't it true, though? You think about it. Israel and the Jewish people, didn't they reject Christ as Messiah at Calvary? Oh, it's true. Some of the leaders did. But would you write this down, please? Certainly not all their leaders did. Not all of them. You got Nicodemus, you have Joseph of Arimathea, both members of the Sanhedrin. They didn't reject him. Certainly not all of the priests. Keep writing. Not all of the priests did. In fact, look at Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Speaking of the... Uh, after Calvary, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith of Jesus. By the way, those priests, of those priests, it could be said, here are they who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Revelation 14, 12 could say it about those priests, couldn't, couldn't you? Christ was not rejected by all the spiritual leaders of Israel, nor was he rejected by the masses of Israel. Keep writing. Certainly not all the people rejected Jesus. No way. In fact, in the Gospel record, Mark chapter 12, verse 47, the common people heard Jesus gladly. Matthew 21, look at this, Matthew 21, 46, the people held that Jesus was a prophet. And by the way, to be a Messiah meant you'd be prophet, priest, and king. So based on the New Testament record, one could hardly conclude that the Jewish people in mass rejected Christ and consequently were in mass rejected by God. The evidence simply is not there. Oh, yeah, but doesn't Paul say something here in, in Romans 10 about God rejecting them? Are, are you thinking about the last line of Romans 10? Look at the last verse. Romans chapter 10, verse 21. But concerning Israel, God says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Aha! There it is. They rejected God's pleadings. Yep. The same way I did with my parents when I was a boy. Same way. You know, I had, a I had a stubborn streak a mile long. By the grace of God, it's down to a kilometer long now. Hmm? But one would hardly declare disobedient and obstinate children worthy of being rejected by their parents. I praise God, but my folks did not reject me because of all the times I disobeyed Him. Once a child is yours, you never say, at least most don't say, you are no longer my child. And God has not given up on Israel either. Chapter 11, look at this. Chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, did God reject His people? By no means. 
I am an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. Look at verse 2. God did not reject His people whom He foreknew. Would you please write that down? God did not reject. Write in the word reject. He did not reject His people. Pretty plain. Pretty simple. Pretty clear, isn't it? Come on. Which means that any teaching that teaches that God has rejected Israel is up against the teachings of the greatest and brightest Jewish Christian in the history of Christianity, who himself has declared God did not reject his people. And in fact, Paul says, let me prove it to you with the story of Elijah. I love the story of Elijah, don't you? I mean, I, that moment when those flaming chariots come down and sweep, talking about bodily assumptions, sweep that man to heaven. The pinnacle of Elijah's life. Hallelujah. But Paul says, I'm not talking about the pinnacle of his life. I want to talk to you about the pit of his life. Ooh. Caught in the grip of what Charles Spurgeon used to describe as my black dog. That great British Baptist preacher suffered from depression throughout his ministry. Martin Luther himself knew the horrible pit of personal depression. And you know what? Some of you do too. I was just visiting, not very long ago, with a young father and husband who told me, Pastor, I don't want to live any longer. In fact, I have to constantly fight the urge to end my life. I want to say to that young adult, I want to say to the rest of you caught in the throes of this vice script that seems will not let you go, don't you ever, ever, ever give up. I mean, the story of Elijah is the story of a man in the pit of depression who got love straight into heaven by God Himself. God loves the victim of depression. You must never, never, ever give up. The same God will get you to heaven. Don't you worry. He will get you to heaven too. Hallelujah. So Paul says, I want to take that moment when he's in the pit of that horror. Elijah, that stomach-twisting pain of depression. God has to chase him down. You remember, he finds it. God finds Elijah. Hold up in this dank cave up the slopes of Sinai. And let's pick the story up. God finds Elijah there. You remember the voice, this divine whisper. Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, boy? Elijah has an answer in verse 3. Lord, whining and whimpering. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I am the only one left. The whole world has gone to hell in the handbasket. There's one little tiny believer in everlasting truth. It's just me, God, just me. I am the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And how does God respond to him? Verse 4, and what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Hallelujah. Israel is going down the tubes, it looks like. But unbeknown to anybody, God has been quietly protecting and preserving a loyal remnant within the unfaithful and unloyal chosen ones. God's kept, God's kept and preserved a remnant. Verse 5, and so Paul says, so too at the present time, 
There is a remnant chosen by grace. What's Paul's point? So too within Israel today, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Ladies and gentlemen, the very existence of a remnant is proof that God preserves the essence of the whole and declares the whole still existing. Because I have just, I have this little critical mass and that's all I need to say that the whole, I've preserved the whole. And by the way, please note, the remnant is always chosen by grace. Whether they're Jews or Gentiles, Israel or the nations, when you get chosen, it is always by grace. Not because of who you are, but because of who God is. That's why. It's the only reason God chooses anybody. Because of who He is. Now, there are two prevailing theories about the Jews and Israel that are both wrong. Both of them. And by the way, one of, one of these theories I have subscribed to from knee-high to a grasshopper, as most of you have. Jack DeCon, in his newest book that I referred to last week, The Mystery of Israel, actually disassembles both theories, takes them apart. And I believe he's right. But what I find intriguing is his suggested third theory. And I want to share that with you in just a moment. But first, let's take a look at these two theories. Theory number one, both theories, both theories are wrong. Theory number one, it's called the Rejection Supersessionist Theory. That name is enough to drive anybody away, isn't it? Now, what, what is up with our theologians? They have to come up with these, these words to kind of scare the rest away. This is my domain now here. And I don't think uh, Jack invented this term. But this is the oldest Christian theory. You know it well. Israel failed. And so when Israel rejected Christ, God rejected them and replaced them with a new people, called it the church, with whom God made a new covenant. Ever heard that one? That quoting... Uh, Professor Dukan, the Israel of the Old Testament stands replaced by the Christian church. That's what this theory teaches. Which has inherited all the privileges and divine blessings given to Abraham and the Hebrew prophets, leaving to the Jews only curses and the judgments. End quote. Most of us, be honest, most of us have grown up with this theory. Have we not? Yes, we have. In fact, would you, uh, let's just make sure that you have this theory in your study guide. Fill it in, please. Literal Israel failed. That's what this theory teaches. Literal Israel failed. Right, and failed as a community of faith. So God has rejected them and raised up the Christian church, right, in church, to inherit Israel's promises, Israel's mission, and Israel's destiny. Hey, but wait a minute. Uh, wait a minute, folks. We, as, as we have just noted in uh, Romans 10 and 11, please, such a theory is, is not countenanced at all by Holy Scripture. I.e., God has not rejected Israel of old as His beloved, even though they stumbled and fell. Uh, look at verse 11 here in Romans 11. Verse 11, again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? No, no, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Now go on to verse 12. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, whoa, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? When God breaks into that community with the truth of the Messiah, can you imagine the glory that will shine on this planet? That's Paul's point. Many of them will come back. Look, look, look at uh, verse 28. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. They're not your enemies, but they've treated you like an enemy. Don't worry about it, Paul says. 
But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. Now listen to this, verse 29. For God's gifts and His call are irrevocable. Ladies and gentlemen, irrevocable means you never take the call back. Once my daddy is my daddy, he will never say to me, you are no longer my son. It's irrevocable. And your parents have treated you the same way. Let God be a father to Israel as well. Both the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Uh, look at verse 30. Just as you who were at one time disobedient yourselves to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so too, verse 31, they have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Finally, verse 32, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that He may have mercy on them all. God will have mercy, yet have mercy on the children of Abraham. Not only the spiritual children of Abraham, but also the physical children of Abraham. He will have mercy on them all. And by the way, please note, Paul is still true to his teaching of universal justification by grace. For in Christ at Calvary, God has had mercy on the entire human race, all the Jews, all the Gentiles who have ever lived. He will have mercy on them all. Oh, does that mean that they'll all be saved? Yes, says errant theory number two. It's wrong. But it says yes. Let's go to it. Theory number two. What's this theory called? It's called the dispensationalist theory. Hey, we did a whole series some time ago, you remember, on that uh, entitled, What Left Behind, Left Behind? We looked at dispensationalism. In fact, that's now in a book. You want to pick the book up, What Left Behind, Left Behind. We'll take that apart there. But let me, let me just summarize this theory in a single sentence, which is something one should never attempt to do. All right? I think it's there in the study guide. Follow along with me. Though the Jews rejected Christ, okay, dispensationalist theory number two. Though the Jews rejected Christ, forcing God into a new dispensation called the Christian church. Nevertheless, at the end of time, Jesus will secretly rapture the church back to heaven, leaving the Jews on earth as the focus of God's redemptive activity, saving all Jews who witness Christ's return at the end of the seven-year tribulation when he sets up his kingdom for a thousand years in Jerusalem. Now, my friends, I, I need to tell you that this is a terribly complex theory that terribly eviscerates, cuts the heart out of Daniel 9's beautiful prophecy of the Messiah, destroys it. Like the Left Behind novels, dispensationalism is simply not true. All Israel saved in the end. Hey, now, it's true. If you read just one verse in this chapter, you could so conclude. Drop down to verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Verse 27, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. But, ladies and gentlemen, Paul's famous parable about the olive tree, which he has just told here in chapter 11, is that not all the branches get saved. Some branches get lost and other branches get grafted into the tree. Honoring our free choices, it is impossible. Possible for God to save all Jews. He can't even save all Gentiles. He can't save all anybody because we are free to say no to Him. Free to say no. Ah, but don't forget verse 13. I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, 
I make much of my ministry, verse 14, in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. I've circled the word some. Does all Israel get saved? No, 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 no. Some will get saved. Theory number two, the dispensational theory, dispensationalist theory is simply dead wrong. Then what happens to the Jews in the end? Ah, now, let me end with Jacticon's intriguing third theory. Theory number three, he calls it the two witnesses theory. You see it there? Could it be, he wonders... That after Calvary, God has preserved both Israel and the church so that in their shared legacies, God's final mission might be powerfully fulfilled on earth. It's true. In ignorance, many in Israel rejected the Messiah when He came. And yet, over the ensuing centuries, Israel has continued to cling to her divine legacy of the Torah, the law of God, powerfully symbolized by the Jews' preservation of the Seventh-day Sabbath throughout their tortured history. They have preserved it. Could it be? That also, during the same time period, the Christian church over these same two millennia has cherished and championed faith in the Messiah, the Savior of the world, thus preserving His community of grace on earth. Could it be that needing both communities, both witnesses, God preserved Israel and the church through the massacres, through the holocausts of the long, dark, and bloody ages until today? Jack writes, I'm quoting him now, As for Israel and the church... Each one was claiming the right of being God's people. But in fact, each was witnessing to a truth that was missing in the other. Israel had the law, but without Jesus. And the church had Jesus, but increasingly downplayed the law, thus making their separate presence on the scene of salvation history necessary. End quote. You following this? God has preserved two witnesses. Write it down, please. Israel with her Torah and the church with her Messiah. A two-witness theory confirmed by the ancient prophet Malachi. I never saw this before. And I want to end with this. Malachi, go back to the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi, the last page of the Old Testament. All right? Malachi chapter 4. The last two lines of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. Let's pick it up in verse 4. Malachi 4 verse 4. Remember the law, the Torah. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb. That would be Sinai for all Israel. Verse 5c, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That is before the sudden cataclysmic end of earth. I'm going to send the prophet Elijah to you. And verse 6, He will turn the hearts of the parents, some say fathers, some translations, He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Get it in your mind and heart, ladies and gentlemen. There are two witnesses. Witness Moses and witness Elijah. Incidentally, Revelation 11 speaks of these same two witnesses, Moses and Elijah. What do these witnesses stand for? Write it down in your study guide. Moses, a witness to the permanence of the Torah. Permanence of the Torah. And Elijah, a witness to the imminence of the Messiah. Two witnesses at the end of time. Now, wouldn't it be something? Think with me. Now, wouldn't it be something if a single community of faith could broker between these two witnesses 
between Israel and the church and eschatologically and, and unite them into a remnant at the end of time for God's final appeal to the earth. Wouldn't it be something? Wouldn't it? Quoting Professor DeCon again, it is indeed remarkable that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the only religious movement that ultimately brought the Messiah and the Torah together. For the first time in history, after 2,000 years of separation, the Torah and the Messiah go hand in hand. In fact, this association constitutes the backbone of Seventh-day Adventist theological identity, end quote. You think about it, ladies and gentlemen, our very name, Seventh-day Adventist, preserves those two witnesses. Seventh-day, the permanence of the Torah. Adventist, the imminence of the Messiah's return. See? For years I've wondered about the fuller meaning of Malachi 4.6's phrase here, turning the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. I don't want to disparage all our family life people who have used this text as the raison d'etre of their family life ministry. But, you know, every time I've read it, I've said to myself... There has got to be more in this prophecy than simply saying we'll have a resurgence of family life ministry at the end of time. And now I'm saying, wait a minute. If the Elijah movement is to look back to the Torah of Moses and look forward with hope to the coming of the Messiah, could it be that the fathers then are the ancient community of, of Israel and the children are the spiritual offspring of those fathers, the Christian church, and there will be a movement at the end of time that will bring the witnesses of these two disparate communities and join them in a single remnant for a final strategic movement of God on earth. Wow. You think about it. You think about it. We, of all people, must journey with the Jews of all people. I remind you, ladies and gentlemen, there is only one Christian community on earth that shares that intimate spiritual and theological and existential kinship with the Jews today. Write this down, please. One Christian community on earth that shares the Jews' reverence of God's law, the Torah. One Christian community on earth that shares their observance of God's Sabbath, the seventh day. One Christian community on earth that honors the ancient sanctuary paradigm. One Christian community on earth that recognizes Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. One Christian community on earth that shares their passion for dietary health. One Christian community on earth that understands life and death and the resurrection. There is one Christian community on earth today that can point the Jewish people to the truth about their Messiah without the abrogation of their law. Jack DeCon notes, it has been that reality, Christianity's rejection of the law, rejection of the Sabbath, that has led Jews to say, no way, I will never become a part of your movement. You have kissed off on the Torah. It is our very lifeblood. Because Christians have rejected the Seventh-day Sabbath and the Torah, they have slammed that door 
to the Jews ever wanting to become a part of that community of faith. But that door is soon to open again to the Jews by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. A century ago, this prediction was made. You have it in your study guide. When this gospel shall be presented in its fullness to the Jews, many will accept Christ as the Messiah. Here's another one. There will be many converted from among the Jews, and a nation shall be born in a day. Wow. And one more. Among the Jews are some who, like Saul of Tarsus, are mighty in the Scriptures. And these will proclaim with wonderful power the immutability of the law of God. The God of Israel will bring this to pass in our day. His arm is not shortened that it cannot save. As His servants labor in faith for those who have long been neglected and despised, His salvation will be revealed. Ladies and gentlemen, it is utterly clear, is it not, that we must journey with the Jews. The Elijah movement has a mission to them and the rest of Christendom and the rest of the world. You know what's been striking me? This movement has been strategically, divinely shaped to journey with the Jews and the evangelicals and the Roman Catholics and the Muslims the world over. I wish I could tell you of stories that I have been sworn to secrecy not to tell. And by the way, I only know the, the faint stirrings of some thrilling divine movements in religious bodies other than our own. But I can testify to you that the compelling re realization for me after studying Romans 10 and 11 and now coupling it with Malachi 4 is that God is creating a remnant. He is in the process secretly of creating a remnant within these major religious bodies on earth, a remnant that shares the same DNA, the DNA of the Messiah, the DNA of the Torah, unbeknownst to the rest, slowly but surely shaping a final end-time remnant for a last mission to a dying planet. Believing that, as I do, then it occurs to me that God has raised up an end-time movement that if she will empty herself of herself, because I know that reading something like this and studying it, there is a tendency to say, whoa! And it is not about the remnant. It cannot be. But that God has raised up an end-time movement that if she will empty herself of herself and cast herself wholly upon Him, she will become the most successful missionary enterprise in the history of this earth. Strategically, divinely shaped for a final mission. Ladies and gentlemen, everything is ready to go. Are you ready to join up we have got to begin now. And how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those 
who bring good news. Holy Father, we hear the teaching of Scripture. And in that teaching today, we hear the call to humility before You. We are not worthy, O God, of any mission at all. But that You would call us for such a time as this. Oh, Father, please, do whatever it takes within us to prepare us and send us forth into your world. That from every nation, tribe, kindred, tongue, and people, and every religious body on earth, there might be brought to you and our Messiah, a community of saved forever and ever. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.